You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with David A. Banks. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. In your case, what do you consider like the new authenticity in cities to be? We have to look at who is the city for? And I think I usually start with Henri Lefebvre and the production of space. And also, you know, what he says about the right to the city, which is actually inscribed in uh, law in Brazil. And I think only in Brazil. But the idea is that it is not an individual right. It is not a right that we think about from Enlightenment era, liberal with the lowercase l politics. The right to the city can only be realized in collectivity, in groups, and that the right to the city is to, you know, make it yours, both aesthetically, like you were talking about, right? You should look out to the city and be like, oh, yeah, that's mine. I live here. This is where I belong, right? While also very materially being able to feed yourself, get around, get to work, right? Uh, all, all that stuff. So it's a very holistic kind of right that, again, the individuals alone can't really realize. So starting with that, you, you start to think like, okay, well, like, how do you look at a city and realize, oh, this is my place? A lot of the time graffiti comes into play in that. That's a statement of this is sometimes literally this is mine, or at least like I belong here. I have the right to change the city in that way. You know, May 68 in Paris had a lot of graffiti unit for exactly that reason. And I, and I think it continues on in the 70s and 80s in New York City with wild style graffiti and stuff like that. It's, it, it's a very similar kind of respect for the city in that way. But then when it comes to like, let's look at the material basis. Like if we have a neighborhood that's really hard up and you want them to do better, if you're a city planner, you're like, oh, well, we should extend the metro line. We should plant some street trees, do things that make that place better and nicer to live in. But unfortunately, because at least in the United States, we don't all live in Vienna. In the United States context, all land is subject to market forces. And so if you build a nice thing, the value goes up. And that has the unfortunate consequence most of the time of pushing people out is the rent goes up because most people that live in hard up neighborhoods don't own that neighborhood, which also I think comes up whenever there's an upright in the wake of police violence or something like that. You hear people say like, what? Why would they destroy their own neighborhood? And it's like, it's not theirs, right? Every day they're being told that it's not theirs. They can't mark it up. They can't own it. They can't do anything to it. And so like, of course you burn it down because every day you're told it's not yours. Then on the other hand is the fact that when you do provide resources, you get kicked out anyway. Like really disturbing scenarios where children, I've heard this, where like children look at a street, a newly planted street tree and get scared because it means that, that they have to leave. That's horrifying that, that a tree scares a kid. That's terrifying. So there is this material basis to everything that I do that is generally considered to be very aesthetic. Let's get to that point, right? Is that there is a contradiction inherent in a capitalist urban system that David Harvey points out. There's actually three of them, but we won't cover all of them. One of them is cultural in that the globalizing forces tend to create their opposition. Sometimes it's really reactionary right-wing stuff, like no more immigrants, stuff like that. But it can also be people who have lived in a downtrodden neighborhood for a really long time and then see their city start advertising themselves as this authentic place where you can experience all this culture that they never invested in, in the first place. And then it's like, oh, we need new people. We don't like those. We don't want those people that we've had for a while. I don't really want to invest in them. Although if you are able to afford this one loan, we can give you a nice restaurant, which you can then serve visitors. And in that instance, 
you get what bell hooks calls consuming the other, where you want a place where usually for white people who as being a part of the unmarked category, like whiteness is normal, then you're like, oh, I need to fill my empty white normal self with culture, which is outside of me. But I also at the same time have to reckon with the fact that I've been taught my whole life that black people are less than me or are somehow more in touch with the earth or their culture or something, right? I, I should say that I'm white, right? But you get told those things all the time as a white person. But then when you want to experience culture, you're in this double bind of I want to consume the other without really seeing them as a whole person. And she describes this as sampling stuff at an all-you-can-eat buffet, but it's people and culture. Right. And, and that's not a one to one relationship. That's not a peer relationship. That is sadly what I think a lot of cities do when they want to try to pump up their image as authentic is that they try to find something in their past or something in their present that usually has an ethnic relationship to it and then sell that. And that's never always a one to one peer relationship. That's not always lifting people up. It's quite often putting them on a buffet table. You said you wanted to speak about ghosts. So tell us what ghosts reveal about our society. Thank you for indulging me. Yeah. So first I have to defend why we would talk about ghosts in a conversation about urban planning and uh, capitalism and all that. So I, I am a huge fan of this really goofy show. It's on, In America, it's on the Travel Channel. It is their most popular show, last I looked. It's called Ghost Adventures. And it is a handful of bros, I, as in like they're really masculine dudes, wear very tight black shirts and like to basically scare themselves in abandoned buildings. They put on a night vision camera and they walk around and they're like, oh, did you hear that? And they turn on all these widgets and devices that make all these weird sounds. And they're like, oh, that means there's a ghost here. And, you know, they, and they see things and they, they try to capture it on video and, they, and some things they debunk which is very important for their credibility later on because they're like, oh, there's some things I see that I don't think are ghosts. But the thing that I, I want to think about is that one, why is this on the Travel Channel? Along with shows about great uh, snorkeling destinations and stuff like that. And the point is that ghosts are sort of the cipher or index of the past. It are often things that may not even be nice. It, it usually falls under the, the term of dark tourism, where you go to a place not because it's happy or cool or, or pretty. You go to it because it's meaningful and perhaps because the meaning is a memory of something very evil or bad. But in terms of ghost adventures, what they're usually doing is going to a rundown town in the American West or Southwest and saying, there are ghosts here, this is creepy, which usually means you should come if you're interested in this kind of thing, right? There is something here that you can't get anywhere else is usually the thing that they, that they have to convince you of is that this place is unique. It has a specific history. And that is essential in capitalist land markets because land doesn't work like any other commodity, even though we have to, under capitalism, it has to be treated like a commodity. And by a commodity, we mean something that is self-similar to other things in its class, and that can then have a set value that can set a price. But unlike, say, an iPhone, where each one is self-similar, there is a set price by the manufacturer, you can increase supply uh, to meet demand, to work with that price. You can't do that with land. You can't really make more land. You can't make them all the same because each parcel of land is, it's also 
inextricably connected to all other parcels of land. So if one parcel of land right next to yours is bad, the price of yours goes down, which is not true. If, you know, if your iPhone screen cracks and you're sitting next to me, that does not impact the, the resale price of my phone. And what stuff like ghosts do is that they're an attempt to push the uniqueness of a place just a little bit in one direction. It doesn't necessarily have to be for tourism. It can just be like, this place used to be something and it could be again. And so the ghost might not necessarily be the, the draw, right? The thing that you actually go there for, but it is a way to tell a story about the past of a place that might be intriguing to people. It's an advertising of why a place at least used to be meaningful and why it could be meaningful again. As you envisage the cities of the future, what kind of programs have you seen that are taking place and need to take place to make the rapid transition towards sustainability and mitigate climate change? Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is we just, we have to change how we connect to land. Who gets to control it? Who owns it? Who gets to build on it? That very fundamentally needs to change because in the Reagan in the United States, Thatcher in the UK, we got a massive export of the mortgage system, right? Where the land is owned by usually a bank institution that is then paid by the person that uses the actual land in the form of a loan, you know, like a mortgage. And this has created one, a very conservative landscape. People start thinking very conservatively when they own an asset, right? Like a financial asset that they really otherwise couldn't afford. There are tons of government subsidies that make it possible for anyone to possibly own a piece of land in the way that most people, you know, inhabit the land and own it. We need to change that because there are some things where there are things called flood zones that flood and what we called like hundred year floods are now 10 year floods. You need to be able to make concrete specific mitigation or something else, some, some sort of change to that land. And right now we're pretty stuck in, in not just the United States, but in many places where no authority can say we need to change the city in XYZ ways in order to avoid future catastrophe and flood zones. We can't do that. And then on the second part is, well, how do you actually solve something like that? I think a big way to, to do it is to start looking at, again, labor power, the power of working people to have control over their surroundings, which get, gets us back to the right of the city. We have to decenter technology as the saving grace for climate catastrophe. All of the technologies necessary to solve a great deal of problems have already been done. The issue is having the political will to make them actually happen. Capital won't do that because it's more advantageous financially to have the problem continually move and then just kind of fix it here and then move it over there and then fix it over there and then move it back over here, right? That's a geographer, Neil Smith calls this the, the, you know, the seesaw effect of, of, of capitalism can never solve a problem. It can just move it around and temporarily patch it. At the very core, changing cities is going to mean changing how we do politics in them what kind of decisions cities get to make. This changes pretty widely across countries and even states within the United States where cities can either get the benefit of the doubt that they get to decide what happens within their jurisdiction unless explicitly stated otherwise. In the United States, that's called home rule, which can be really useful, but it also sets up this race to the bottom in a lot of cases where they do not have the resources to, say, have a legal team put together to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Amazon 
or Alibaba or Tesla, any of these enormous companies, they're like, oh, we're going to build a factory in your town. And if you don't, we're going to build an unincorporated land just outside of it. So you better give us all these taxes. Again, it's going back to this freedom to hurt yourself, you know, right? To, to work against your own interests is the only freedom that a lot of cities don't have. And so it's unfortunate. It's not a very satisfying answer. But if cities are going to combat climate change, it's all political changes because the political changes can bring about the degrowth, the moving away from cars as the, the centerpiece of transportation, the mitigating the problems that we know we've already locked in. All these things need to happen. And I think a majority of people, it's an empirical question, but I believe the majority of people do want those things to happen. They want the planet to continue going <laughs> or at least be habitable. Right. You know, call me selfish, but yeah, I'd like the planet to keep working. I keep all my stuff here and that needs to happen. But those changes can only be realized with some significant changes to how cities are governed and their relationship to corporations, transnational actors and the, the states that they reside. In. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.